presence of Jesus. Jesus, we welcome you here with your word, with your authority, and with your power. And we ask, Lord, that you come speak to us now through your scriptures, shapers, molders, encouragers, and empowerers. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, band. If it's so good to have you back up here as well. If, <laughs> some of you might not know, but... Ifa has uh, been with us for many years. She, she left a few years ago to go and be a doctor and is coming back for the weekend and jumped on worship team with us. What an absolute treat and blessing. Thank you, Ifa. <laughs> hey, can we give a round of applause to our young people who are just leaving as well? We love you, young people. You're awesome. Have a great time downstairs. Thank you, team, as well, who are leading that. Absolutely awesome. Well, church, good morning, good morning, good morning. Wel welcome to all those online as well. So glad you're here. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm part of the team here and just really excited to be starting a new series today uh, that is going to go on for the next couple of weeks, which uh, I'm really, really excited about. Wasn't last week just incredible? Um, put your hand up if you was with us last week in the building here. Um, powerful sense of God's presence with us uh, as he just started to press on us and minister into our hearts and our lives. And what I believe he's doing is preparing us at this moment in this time um, to a leading of something new, which is exciting, really, really excited. Of course, last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, uh, the celebration of the falling of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the early church. And as Mark so rightfully uh, encourages with, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the moment of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where the church has started to be birthed into existence in all of its glory and all of its power. Pete Gregg, he wrote these words about Pentecost Sunday, and I want to read these out because it's going to set up a little bit about what we're going to be speaking about uh, over the next 20 minutes or so. He said these words about Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday celebrates the birth of a 2,000-year-old, 2 billion-strong revolutionary movement of love and justice. Amen? The Church of Jesus Christ, for all of its many faults, is by far the biggest most socially, culturally, ethnically, and politically diverse community in the whole of the earth. It is actively engaged in caring for the sick, fighting poverty, making peace, and shaping culture. In countless of contexts, from war zones to hospitals and food banks to refugee camps, its numbers serve sacrificially as a beacon of hope. At the heart of the church are millions of ordinary people just like you and me, hence that it has some imperfections. But at the heart of our imperfect lives burns the power and presence of the Holy Spirit given at the Feast of Pentecost. Powerful words from a friend of ours, Pete Gregg, commenting on Pentecost. Pentecost was the moment the Holy Spirit started to do in us what Jesus had already done for us. And he started to birth in us the fullness of what Jesus accomplished in our lives and through our lives. And what started to happen was the church started to give birth as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the church that Jesus Christ has called them to be. And today, we are going to be starting a new series called Ecclesia. So behind me, Ecclesia. And Ecclesia is the Greek word that Jesus used when he says the word church. We will, as we explore the Ecclesia, we will look into its fullness. We will delve into its possibilities of what 
The people of Jesus are called to be part of building. We will explore the foundations of the ecclesia today, be challenged by the call of radical devotion to Jesus, and look to see how we can be equipped with courage and boldness within this time of need. Who's ready to be the church this morning? Come on, who's ready to be the church this morning? The ecclesia of God, the people of God, the one that Jesus is building, growing, and advancing. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 18. It's going to come up behind me. If you've got an iPhone, you can get your Bible app. If you've got a Samsung, we can pray for you. Uh, if <laughs> It's divided in the room there, look. Uh, <laughs> Uh, If you've got a real Bible, then you're really setting a standard. This is fantastic. Matthew 16, verse 13 to 18, says these words. This is the words of Jesus to his disciples, to us today. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, we're going to note that in a moment. It's really important. He asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, here we go, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. Some of you need to preach that last verse to your life because the gates of hell have come for you. They've backed you up. They've boxed you in a box. And you need to say to yourself today, not in my strength, not in my power, but by the Spirit of the Lord today, Jesus will build his church through me and in me. And the gates of hell will not prevail. They will not overcome it. There is nothing the enemy can do to thwart the plans, mission, and advancement of the church of Jesus Christ. That's glorious truth for us this morning. How many people know that it is the Lord that builds his church? It's his church. It's not a building that grows it. It's not our strength that grows it. He is establishing it. He is leading it. He is growing it. He is building it. The church doesn't belong to a people or a building or a space. It belongs to our king. Jesus Christ in all of his fullness and splendor. And this is good news Because the enemy might be able to distract us at times. He may be able to box us in at times. But there's one absolute truth that the enemy can't do. And that's do the same things to our king that is Jesus Christ. Caesarea Philippi, where this was taking place, was a really, really interesting place. When you study uh, the kind of hermeneutics and the background of this scripture, you find that Caesarea Philippi was fascinating. It was plagued and filtered with demonic idol worship. Like it it was like the place known in the whole of the land for being filtered with pagan and rival deities to Jesus. One of the greatest demonic platforms of the regions. There was temples of false gods. There was literally a visual representation of the gates of hell. That's a fascinating thing to know. That in this place is area Philippi. You can actually go and see this place today. There was these, right now existing, there's this big cliff and these big rocks where you can see the images of what people were creating temples for these false gods. And right next to these images, there is this huge cage, like it is massive. And the people of the time literally and genuinely believed that this was the physical gates of hell. 
They believed that the false god of Baal and the naturist god of Pan would come out of hell through these gates. And as he did, they would enter the earthly realms. And that's where they would sacrifice things and praise these false gods. It was literally besotted by such difficulty and disruption. So Jesus, being the man that he is, isn't just going to say the gates of hell will not prevail anywhere. He wants to go to the very place that people think the gates of hell exist and stand right in front of it and say, look at this place right here that you guys think is the gates of hell. I'm standing here now as the son of the God, living God, as the Messiah, and I declare to you that these gates will not prevail with that which I am building. I am building far, something far superior, far stronger, and far bigger that these gates will never be able to withstand. So Jesus starts to shape the church, and that's what we read in Matthew 16. That's the backdrop of where he says these things to his disciples. The word church that he uses is this word ecclesia, or if you're American, you could say ecclesia. The ecclesia. And ecclesia has... Two different definitions that combine to one to give us an understanding of what Jesus was trying to build. When we hear the word of church, um, anyone in society in the world, inside these walls or outside of these walls, will have stereotypes that come to their head. They will believe that church may look a certain way and be filled with a certain type of people. And just because we are here in that world now does not necessarily mean that that is the greatest picture or the truest definition of what Jesus said when he said he was going to build his ecclesia. The two definitions is a legal term and a biblical term. Let me give you them. Legal term is the gathering of a governing body to vote and make decisions. So the ecclesia of the time was actually a real-life people group. So he wasn't just referencing a word that he'd made up. He was referencing a people group that already existed. And they gathered to literally make legal decisions. They were the governing authorities and bodies of the land and of the time. And he said, that's going to be like the people that I'm going to gather as my as my church, as my ecclesia, the biblical term or the Christian definition is the set-apart ones, the called-out ones. So in order for us to get a true definition of what Jesus was meaning, we combine the two together. The ecclesia is the set-apart, called-out people of God who are here to govern this earth under his rule and authority as he advances his church. Jesus makes the distinct definition of who church is. It's not an event. It's not a location. It isn't an experience, it isn't a building. The ecclesia is the church. It is the people of God who have been called to be set apart under the rule and reign of Jesus as he establishes his kingdom and he establishes heaven here on earth. As the church, the world should look at us and when they see us, they should get a true picture of what it looks like for heaven invading earth. That's the mandate and calling that's placed on your life. That's the mandate and calling that's placed on every single one of our lives. That we aren't here just to build an empire or build a structure. We are here to be the visual representation of the embodiment of heaven here on earth in all its fullness and all of its power. That is the ecclesia. So we know the Lord builds his church. We know what the ecclesia is. We get to understand it a little bit more. We know it exists. We're part of it. Or I suspect you are if you're here today or watching online. What does it look like in today's society and culture? Well, it's the reason why we started with Pentecost, because there's no better place to understand the Ecclesia than going back to their first moments. And we read about their first moments in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. Last week, we heard about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, started to preach the gospel to thousands of people who had gathered for this major festival that took place once a year. And this is what happens from verse 41. 
those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How incredible is that? 3,000 people hearing the, the gospel message and saying, do you know what? I want a bit of that ecclesia. I, I want to be part of that revolutionary movement. Friends, the world will tell you that you need to be quiet about salvation. I'm here to tell you that you do not. Turn up the volume of your life, of the things of Jesus in your life. If the world can be loud about sin, we can be loud about salvation. Amen? That's what Peter started to do. It's note, note a little point here as well. Peter is the same person who a few weeks earlier when Jesus was being crucified denied the, the, the reality and knowing of Jesus three times. He then goes on a few weeks later to preach the first gospel message of the ecclesia, the church, and 3,000 people get saved. What does that tell us? It tells us simply this. The Holy Spirit, is not a pers- the Holy Spirit using a person is not a reward for good behavior. It's a response to hungry hearts. If you have canceled yourself out because of behavior, past, present, or future, to be used by God, let me help you this morning to break free from that mandate. The cross is far bigger than any mistake you can possibly ever make in your life. Jesus wants to use you to be part of the ecclesia, to be part of the church, to be surrendered to his ways. We continue verse 42, and I'm going to have to speed up to get through this today. As we read these words, reflect on your understanding and practice of the church. This is what the church should look like. Let the Holy Spirit come and prompt us as he invites us into the building of this and establishing this here on earth. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to four things. We're going to look at these four things over the next few weeks. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. No, they didn't just say they they do those things irregularly every now and then. They choose to do those things. It says they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed by the apostles. Sounds fun to me. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Now, that is a miracle in itself, right? Gosh. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That sounds like a good movement, doesn't it? Sounds like a healthy church to me. Sounds like something that Jesus purposely built. I find it fascinating. We're going to look at the breaking down of this here. Thank you, team, that put this on. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the book of Luke, the gospel before Acts. And he was a scholar, very, very clever man. He wrote lots of things, and he was very, very intelligent. And what Luke does in these passages is he doesn't just give us an, uh, an oversight of what the church should look like, but he gives us four main points in verse 42. And then the following verses, he shows us the fruit of what happens when we devote ourselves to those four points. It's fascinating. He speaks about the apostles' teaching. He speaks about fellowship. He speaks about the breaking of bread. He speaks about prayer. And then he spends the remainder of the verses telling us exactly what will happen when we do that. When we devote ourselves to the word, we will be filled with awe. We'll be filled with an expectancy and a hunger for the things of the Lord if we devote ourselves to the word of the Lord on a daily basis. Fellowship. This is that Greek word koinonia which means to give in, to share, to build in with one another. When we become a fellowship, a community that commits 
And note that I say that word quite strongly. It commits to the faults and the imperfections of people that you're going to do life with. What happens when we do that? Radical generosity starts to overflow. Like the people just become aware of the generosity of Jesus, but also the call to be generous towards one another. When they commit to the breaking of bread, we're going to look at this next week. The breaking of bread wasn't just communion as much as that was part of it. The breaking of bread was literally a a significant plan to eat food together. I'm a fan of that one. Come on. Yeah? Like just food. Love it. Commit to the breaking of bread. What happens when that hit? The fruit of that? We become a devoted community. What does a devoted community look like? It looks like a beacon of hope to the world. It looks different to what the world suggests and shows us through the brokenness of life. We become a devoted community. And finally, prayer. When we become devoted to prayer. You know one of the highlights of this pandemic as the prayer has started to rise within this church? What happens when we become devoted to prayer? Salvation. Salvation doesn't happen by a good polished testimony or by a great preacher. Salvation happens when we first and foremost go to the prayer closet and start to pray, Lord, please bring people back to the kingdom of God. Rescue people from the darkness and bring them into your glorious light. We've experienced it and we want others to experience it. We're going to look at the first two really quickly. The word. The word, Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Verse 43, the fruit of it, everyone was filled with awe and many signs and wonders were being performed. When we hear this, we automatically go to a certain thing, or, or my mind certainly does anyway. I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone else. But when I hear about the apostles' teaching, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and when I hear about the signs and wonders being performed, my mind, when I was reading this and studying this, automatically came to this service. Sunday morning service, the apostles' teaching, someone gets up, preaches the word. If the Holy Spirit wants to bless it, signs and wonders start to break out. The majority of signs and wonders in my life have happened and seen within the context of a Sunday gathering or a conference gathering. That's where I've seen a lot of the things take place. And my mind automatically goes to that. Preacher, ministry time, all starts to arise. That's our context. That's what we're used to. But when we hear about the glory and awe mentioned in the book of Acts, it's important for us to know that these things didn't take place in the temple. The signs and wonders that we hear about and the apostles' teaching, which is the word of God, chewing over it, breaking into it, wrestling over it, wasn't just an occasional act for Sunday morning. It was something they, again, the word, devoted their lives to. Perhaps that we have tried or we have, by mistake, boxed the Holy Spirit into the four walls of the church and over the last few years he's been breaking free and signs and wonders will no longer be the norm within our gatherings on a Sunday morning. They'll happen, I'm sure, but we will start to come into Sunday gatherings, into our gatherings together, filled with the signs and wonders that have already happened within our week, filled with the teaching of God, the word of God that is bubbling over us and in our workplace we come to allow the testimonies of God to break free, to encourage and empower other people within within this place. Then instead of just hearing the apostles' teaching maybe once a week to try to get through the week, we become filled with the word of God, devoted to it every single day. It becomes the heartbeat of who we are. That is what the ecclesia looks like. Worship starts to break out across dinner tables, not just through singing, but through live surrenders. As they start to commit to the word, all starts to grow in their hearts. 
You see, the Bible isn't primarily about principles to live by. It's about a person to live for. Come on, it's about a person to live for. We can get values and principles for sure, but that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. Jesus comes and transforms our heart. He creates awe in our heart. And then from that, the byproduct is good works. Of course, it is a life that is made cleaner as we go. But it doesn't mean that we are perfect people. It means we are imperfect people pointing to the one who is perfect. Come on, the word of God starts to shape us. You know, if you don't become confident in the authority of Scripture over, over your life, you will become a slave to whatever sounds best. You'll become a slave to the most popular opinions of culture if the Word of God is not your primary source. I see it happening all the time. I work with young people. The most dominant cultural narrative will start to guide lives if we move away from the Word of God. Culture will always lead that narrative. You know, Scripture critiques every culture it enters, and that's why it's so powerful. It's more relevant than tomorrow's news headlines. It's more liberating than the latest trends. And when His Word dwells in us, it starts to create an awe in our lives. Here's that word awe, fascinating word. You see, awe is a beautiful word for this reason, because it's not something we can create. Don't know about you, but I can't, I can't just like create awe in my heart. Awe happens when something so awesome strikes us with significance, and the only response is, wow. Like there are moments that I know many of you have had where you're like, I haven't even got the words to explain or describe the goodness of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, those moments in your life where you have just been struck melted in his presence with an awe. You know, those things happen sporadically within our lives, but there is a call for us to learn to walk in it every single day. And the call to walk in it every single day is not to wait for those moments to come. It's to find the awe of Jesus as we grow closer to him by being devoted to the word of God. That's where we find the, the awe of Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning to continue to set your hearts in finding the awe of Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning to share your testimonies, to be bold of your devotion, to cling to his word and allow it to drip off your life. Let your amazement of Jesus be one of the most common conversations that you have with people around you. Let your thankfulness and gratitude towards him be one of the first things that comes off your life. If there is one thing we should never shut down in someone else's life, it's their awe for their king. Expect the church of the future to be no more for its adoration and awe of Jesus rather than its program creation for believers. Hear that one. Expect the church of the future to be known for its devotion to the word of God rather than its devotion to weekly gatherings. Expect the church of the future to be known for gathering together daily around his word rather than gathering together weekly. The church of the future, the ecclesia, the thing that Jesus is building, is going to be full of life and fun and adventure and mission but it's going to be founded on the word. Secondly, and band, if you could come up at this point, that would be fantastic. Fellowship produces radical generosity. They devoted themselves to fellowship, verse 42. And then verses 44 and 45, it comes up here. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That's fellowship. What happens? They start to sell their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That, that is radical right there. Like, just think of your own situation. 
and think of the Lord started to press on you and say, okay, I want you to sell it all. Like house, we're going there. Car, phones, TVs, Netflix account, can I say that? Sell it all. And with your possessions, start to become radically generous. This is what happened in the Ecclesia. Now just ask yourself a question. How far have we drifted from that? God is generous. He exceeds and abounds in his generosity to his people. And when we start to do life together in fellowship, when we become committed to one another in community, two things start to happen. We become more aware of the generosity of Jesus. And I want to remind some of you, as I say that statement about them selling their possessions and stuff, the reason why they did it so easily was because they wasn't held captive by the fears of going bankrupt. They were held captive by the promises and generosity of their King Jesus. He will provide every single thing that we need. There is no lack in the kingdom of heaven. He has all the resources that we need to be able to fulfill the mandate that he has. So we start to become more aware of his generosity. And in doing so, because we're more aware of his generosity and his provision, we become generous in ourselves. We start to give freely. Like seriously start to give freely. When we meet up with someone for a coffee and they say, I'm so anxious about my bills. I'm so anxious about paying the rent this month. Our natural response is, I'm just going to pray for you. Our natural response will eventually become, I want to help you provide. I want to step in. I want to give something towards that. I want to pray. I want to support. But I want to become radically generous because I'm committed to doing life with people. That's what fellowship looks like. Within our current society and culture, this is a really difficult and touchy subject because our minds have been implicitly discipled to maintain, to grow, and to keep, rather than to release, decrease, and let go. There's the model of Jesus. You know the homeless king that we serve? The one that said, I don't, I don't have a rock, I have a rock for a pillow, I, I, I don't have anywhere to go. That, that was the Jesus that was calling the people at the time as the Ecclesia to be committed together so you can be radically generous. I'm going to end with two things. There are two responses to the church around generosity that I've seen and I still see today that need to be discussed and it needs far longer, it needs conversation, it doesn't need one person giving his opinions and preach, I'm aware of that. But here's the two responses that I see around generosity happening all the time. On one extreme, you have the prosperity gospel. Like, and what I mean by that is not that the Lord wants to prosper you, because I believe he does, but what I mean by that is like, we should all have four Ferraris, maybe five, a mansion, and constant supply. And we, we have that extreme over here, and then we have this other extreme that is literally so suspicious of any form of generosity at all. Like, they would cling to the fact that we, we shouldn't need anything. Right in the middle of those two, we find the generosity of Jesus. The Lord wants to bless and prosper his people. He wants to provide. He wants to protect. He wants to support. If you are desperately in need of the generosity of Jesus in this moment, my prayer for you is that he will rather provide miraculously for you or that he will encourage someone who is part of your fellowship to step in. 
there we have the ecclesia. To end, I, I want to do this. We did this in the first service and I found it helpful. If you have ever had a moment in your life where you have experienced the radical generosity of Jesus in your life, like there was just money that's just been popped up in your account, you're like, I have no idea where that comes from. You've had letters be posted through your letterbox of giving and finance to you and you're like, I don't know where this has come from. You have experienced the generous riches of his spirit and of his fruit and of his gifts that you would sit here today and say, I have tasted and seen the radical generosity of Jesus in my life at some point. Would you just lift up your hand to heaven for me? Okay, now just keep your hands up. Just look around. Look around. Look at the hands. What you're seeing here right now is the faithfulness of God to provide, to protect, and to be generous to his people. Now here's what I'm going to do. If you just had your hands raised, you can, you can have your hands, lay your hands down. There's going to be other people in this room, and they're struggling. They're desperate for the generosity of Jesus. They're anxious about paying rent, paying bills. The weights of the world are starting to, to bog them down. Just for a moment, would you just start to pray with me for release of the radical nature of generosity through his people and through miraculous intervention? And if that's you, if you need that this morning, just be ready to receive as I close. Holy Spirit, we pray right now and we thank you that you are a generous God. You're a God that gives good gifts to his people. You're a God that says that you will care for us, protect for us, and provide for us. And this isn't the prosperity gospel. This is us trusting in the fact that you will look after your people. You'll look after your sons. You'll look after your daughters. And you will step in in a time of need. So I pray for two components right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, for miraculous intervention for people that need to taste the generosity of Jesus. I pray for a movement of miracles, signs and wonders that we would come in the weeks ahead as the Ecclesia saying Jesus has turned up again and he has provided for my need in this time. And the second thing I pray for, I pray that you start to stir in people's hearts right now. Stir in people's hearts those that have been blessed to use their blessing to bless other people. Stir the radical generosity of fellowship and canonia stir up in people's hearts wells to overflow to be committed to one another so much that we'd be willing to sell those things that we love in order to support the needs of our friends and our families and our brothers and our sisters stir in us holy spirit the call of the ecclesia we pray this in your powerful name amen